You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Welcome, everyone. Thank you all so much for carving out the time to join me for this week's episode, episode 33, learning about yourself through the lens of Ayurveda. Ayurveda is a system of wisdom that I love talking about, and so I'm so excited to share this episode with you this week. But before I launch in, just wanted to briefly draw your attention to two free resources. One is a multi-page document workbook called Signs of Perfectionism, a guided self-assessment to help you identify any tendencies or patterns in your life that may be perfectionistic and may be keeping you stuck so you can decide in an intentional way how to potentially address some of those tendencies and patterns. And the second is a free four-part video series integrating science-backed strategies from psychology with complementary and alternative medicine to help you cultivate key pillars of resilience, including body awareness, decreasing your stress response, clarifying values, and bolstering self-compassion. So I'm really excited to be offering those tools. And if you haven't already, I hope you go check them out. You can find the links in my bio on Instagram at Dr. Foynes or on my website, melissafoynes.com. As many of you know, Ayurveda is one of the many ancient wisdom traditions that I draw from in the holistic coaching program. And so if this episode today intrigues you, I encourage you to check out that program, reach out to me to see if the program might be a fit for you. Happy to talk to anyone that is interested in potentially applying. And I really just so love offering this modality within this program because it has such deep wisdom. I've seen it contribute to such powerful transformation in people's lives, especially in tandem with many of the other tools and wisdom traditions in the program from other ancient traditions and healing modalities as well as evidence-based psychology. Since I only have two spots left for the program for the rest of 2021, I'll only be accepting applications for about another month. Though if you are interested, please feel free to reach out and apply because I will be opening up more slots next year in 2022. So in today's episode, I'm going to start off by sharing about what Ayurveda is. And then I will share a bit about my personal background and what drew me towards Ayurveda. 
And I'll also discuss some specific information, some key principles that can help guide you in understanding yourself better and becoming more aware of what you need to stay in balance in body, mind, and spirit in your life, as well as ways that you can get back on track, that you can recalibrate and work towards more balance when you notice some kind of imbalance. I'll then share some tips and strategies for your process of self-study and becoming more aware of ways in which you can craft your life in a way that specifically caters towards your unique mental and physical constitution. I'll also share some applications of Ayurveda to certain lifestyle practices, specifically breath work and meditation, to help exemplify how you might use what you learn through this process of self-study in order to bring about more balance and harmony in your life. Ayurveda is a holistic preventative medicine system considered by many scholars to be the oldest healing science, and it originated in India at least 5,000 years ago. In Sanskrit, Ayurveda means the science of life, or at least that's one of the translations of the word Ayurveda, and I love this particular translation of Ayurveda because I really think it embodies and exemplifies that Ayurveda is so linked to wisdom, wisdom of self-study, of self-awareness, of self-observation, and the ways in which we apply the wisdom and knowledge that comes from those ways of understanding ourselves to cultivate and craft our lives accordingly. Ayurveda was taught for many thousands of years in an oral tradition, however, is documented in text form for those of you who are familiar with the ancient sacred texts, the Vedas, and Ayurveda in particular comes from part of one of the four Vedas, the Arthavaveda. And one of the key principles of Ayurveda is the intrinsic relationship between us and the universe. So there is this particular statement in the sacred texts, yat pinditat brahmandi, and this can be interpreted in many ways. So one translation, one interpretation is all that is outside of you is within you, or your body is a miniature universe or even whatever is in the microcosm is also in the macrocosm so really illustrating that we as individual beings are actually an integral part of this larger universe and universal system of consciousness and what this means to me personally is that when the seasons change we change When there is stress on the planet, there is stress within us, whether it's to the earth, mother nature, to animals. When there is distress in other human beings, that affects us. There is a dynamic interplay and relationship between all beings, all life forms in the universe. And so because of this dynamic interplay, arriving at balance and harmony are also dynamic. It is something that is iterative. It is ongoing. It is not a destination that you arrive at. And that this dynamic interplay happens in all domains of our lives. 
I really think about Ayurveda as a living body of wisdom because of this dynamic quality. And Ayurveda includes many different modalities of healing. And so covering Ayurveda and ways it applies to you and that you can implement some of this wisdom in your own life is well beyond the scope of an hour-long podcast episode. So I do want to recognize that fact here so that you know that really what we're talking about today is part of a much larger and very complex system. In Ayurveda, there is a very strong focus on prevention. And Ayurveda encourages the maintenance of health and wellness and well-being through close attention to balance in your life through these different modalities of healing, through food as medicine, nutrition and spices, physical activities, thought patterns, your actions, your lifestyle, body work like warm oil massage or abhyanga or marma therapy, detoxification practices, daily and seasonal rituals and routines. So you can see how there are just so many different components and branches that are beyond the scope of what we can really cover today. But my hope is that I can still offer some kernels of wisdom that you can continue to explore in your life and implement in a way that resonates with you. My personal journey with Ayurveda really goes way back. It really began in some of my early experiences with yoga and Ayurveda is considered a sister science of yoga and both yoga and Ayurveda complement one another quite nicely and are both based on the Sankhya philosophy which really describes this is a very cliff notes version because again this is another very complicated wisdom, body of wisdom. And the Sankhya philosophy really describes the makeup of the universe as being comprised of both consciousness as well as tangible matter or form. I would say that I started taking yoga classes many, many years ago, but I didn't really become a yoga student in earnest until a few years before my son was born. So like many people, I was introduced to yoga through asana, the physical practice of yoga, and over time really began to appreciate the philosophy of yoga, the psychology of yoga, the wisdom body of yoga as an ancient practice and all of the different aspects of of yoga, as well as the ways in which yoga is connected to Ayurveda. So I would say that in the early days of my yoga practice, my exposure to Ayurveda was more in the context of teachings that would be shared in the context of asana classes. And my understanding of it was honestly more intellectual. It was less experiential, it was less embodied, and I did not appreciate the depth of this body of wisdom. And my desire to dig deeper into Ayurveda and really learn more really happened in a similar way to how many things in my life have happened, which was really prompted through experience and living and evolution of my thought process and noticing aspects of myself that really 
were hungry for something more. And I don't think it's uncommon the more you encounter hardship in your life and the more that you realize the limitations to your own awareness of yourself and the tools and strategies that you have available to you to navigate life's stressors and complexities, the more you have this fire to grow and to transform and to add to your life toolbox, so to speak. And so for me, Ayurveda was an example of that. So I became a mom and a few months after my son was born, around three to four months, he had a lot of very scary and challenging medical complications. And I had a lot of difficulties interacting with the allopathic Western medical system, very invalidating experiences. And I was in Boston at the time and this epicenter of science and academic rigor and really passionate people who loved what they did still probably love what they do that really were quick to say that nothing was wrong when as a mom as a person it was so clear that something was so wrong with my baby because he was losing weight he had stopped eating And it was very stressful. It was very anxiety-provoking. It was very scary. At one point, he was given this failure-to-thrive diagnosis, which I wish would be completely eradicated from our nomenclature because I think for so many parents, that is such a shaming diagnosis to receive. And so I won't go into the whole backstory about what happened with my son, but essentially there were multiple hospitalizations and consultations and specialists and working with leaders in the research field in these hospitals some of these premier places in in the country and ultimately no one could really help and that was extremely isolating and as many of you know when someone that you deeply love is suffering and you don't feel like you can help That is one of the most painful feelings that I think we can experience as human beings. And so for me, I really felt like the medical system had failed me and I didn't know where to go. And so I basically took it upon myself to do research and ultimately figured out on my own what was happening. But the point or one of the points I'm trying to make is that It was through this experience of isolation and feeling invalidated and feeling so scared and so helpless that I realized that even as a psychologist, even as someone who had developed all sorts of coping strategies and tools throughout my lifespan, what I had at that time was not a match for what I was encountering. And that was also really scary. As someone also who copes by problem solving and coming up with plans, it it was really destabilizing and unsettling. And also being in this place where because what my son was going through, what we were going through as a family was relatively uncommon, I felt like most people couldn't relate and they did try like the specialists and the doctors tried and our friends and family and other loved ones tried but ultimately people didn't really appreciate what we were going through and 
I really remember just craving on such a deep level, wanting to talk to someone who could appreciate on some level, even if their experience was different, what I was going through. And I did. I ultimately did find one other parent who I developed a strong relationship with, which was a really powerful part of my experience. But I found my way back to yoga. I was looking for a home, a place to feel held and understood. And so I just, I went back to my practice and I then decided to do a yoga training, a teacher training, not to become a teacher, but really to deepen my own practice and really wanted to find a way to be in a space of fear and uncertainty and isolation in a way that didn't completely break me down, where I didn't completely fall apart. And that led me to Ayurveda as well. And I continued in my journey of study with both Ayurveda and yoga more intensively from that point forward. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to know. And the more I learned, the more I realized how much some of this knowledge would have been so powerful and helpful to me personally, as well as to my son, in terms of all of the wisdom of Ayurveda and its applications to pregnancy and postpartum and certain kinds of difficulties medically that infants can experience. So one thing led to the next and I I ended up, as many of you know, studying at an Ayurvedic school in Colorado. Um, But I do think that had it not been for some of those challenges and that life experience, I I don't know if my path would have led me to Ayurveda in the ways that it did. And both Ayurveda and yoga together really helped me find a sense of an anchor in in the midst of this storm and find find a bit of inner sanctuary and even though my husband is incredible and so sensitive and loving and intuitive we both had very different experiences of what was happening and for me having birthed my son in my body having grown my son in my body I had so much self-blame for what was happening and really was searching for why this has had happened what I had done wrong and so I really needed some again, more intense tools than what was available to me at the time for deepening my self-compassion, for deepening my trust in myself, and and really trying to find a way to trust that things were on some level going to be okay, that wasn't a bypass, that wasn't an invalidation or a superficial overpass of what I was truly experiencing. So one reason that I love Ayurveda so much is that it's not a prescriptive or one-size-fits-all approach. It's, it's not a simple recommendation of, oh, is avocado good for you? Or what about prunes? It's more like, will this particular food, this particular lifestyle practice, this particular habit, this particular way of approaching your exercise regimen or your meditation practice bring you closer to or further away from balance 
if you're experiencing anxiety and depression or constipation and headaches during the fall season at the evening time of day. So as you can see, it's it's really not a simple black and white question of good, bad, healthy, unhealthy. It's just really, really nuanced. And under it's about understanding under what circumstances might it be helpful or unhelpful versus understanding things that are categorically good or bad for you. So I really appreciate that non-judgmental approach that really keeps the unique individual in mind since I I really just don't believe that that anything is really one size fits all except maybe things like we all need water you know those kinds of things so there there really is a nuanced understanding that also needs to iterate depending on what you're experiencing in your body mind and heart in terms of the time of day in terms of the season etc etc So because of this iterative, nuanced approach to understanding what brings us closer to or further away from balance, we need to understand what our makeup is and how to work with that makeup for optimal wellness. So it's really about how can you support yourself rather than imposing a specific recommendation without consideration. So in that sense, I also think it's a really compassionate way of working with what is. And something that really frustrates me about the health and wellness industry globally defined is when things start to get really moralistic, when people start to get judgy about what other people are doing, because in actuality, everything is so relative in terms of what wellness looks like, what healing looks like from person to person at different phases of their lives. So maybe to you, my parenting style looks permissive according to your standards, but maybe I'm actually in this phase in my life where my work is to actually let go a little bit and be less rigid and harsh in my expectations of my child. So I'm working towards a more easeful and agile approach to parenting. Or maybe my kid needs a certain style of parenting that's different from what your kids need or what your nieces and nephews need or what you needed as a child or even what you've read in the conscious parenting books, right? So we often presume we know what's right for each other and even ourselves, whereas Ayurveda really honors our innate wisdom and the importance of really tuning in to that inner wisdom and really promoting our capacity as self-healers to guide us towards more balance, more wellness, and an enhancement of well-being across all of our life domains. So those are a few of the many reasons that I just so love and appreciate and honor this body of wisdom. In order to better understand your unique makeup and constitution so that it can guide your lifestyle and various practices, we need to first take a step back and recognize what comprises our mental and physical constitution. So again, reflecting back on the Sankhya philosophy I mentioned earlier, this philosophy 
proposes that the human body and all forms in our universe are made up of different combinations of five elements. Space or ether, which in Sanskrit is akash, air or vayu, fire or agni, water or jala, and earth or prathvi. And these five elements are considered both expressions of energy as well as present in matter itself. So they have both a tangible form as well as more of a subtle energetic form. And I will point out that Ayurveda is not the only system that highlights these five elements. Buddhist psychology also describes our physical existence in particular using four primary elements, earth, air, fire, and water, and really uses these four elements to attune to ways that we experience our physical form, our body. So pressure and texture would be more of that earth element, warmth and cool, and temperature would be more of the fire element, vibration or stillness, it would be more air, and cohesion and fluidity would be more water. And this understanding, this philosophy, this psychology is similar to other traditional systems of psychology and medicine in ancient cultures, Greek, Chinese, African, Native American. And so while some of the Ayurvedic wisdom and how it is applied to our lifestyles is specific and perhaps unique to Ayurveda, there is also commonality with other cultural ancient wisdom traditions. There is overlap and I think that's important to highlight as well. So I'll share a bit more detail about the Ayurvedic perspective on these five elements because again, since Ayurveda really emphasizes the importance of self-study, self-observation in order to attune and cultivate our lives accordingly, craft our lives accordingly, it's really important to experientially notice, feel, to be able to identify these five elements in different ways. And I think for me, one of the quote-unquote easier places to begin is with the body. Now this may not be helpful to you. This may not be the way that you really learn to digest, internalize, and embody Ayurveda. But I'll share this with you just as an example of how you can get to know each of these elements within yourself. I'll also share some personal examples of the ways in which I experience each of these elements in a more energetic way mentally or even in terms of how I read other people, how I interpret their presence, their behavior, their communication style to offer just another lens through which you can begin to experience some of these elements, not only within yourself, whether it's in your physical body or in terms of the tendencies of your mind or the patterns in your mind, but also in terms of how you observe other people. Because for some of us, it can be easier to look outward and to observe some of these both tangible expressions of these elements, as well as more of the subtle energetic expressions of these elements in other people and our dynamics between people. 
I'll start with sharing a bit more about space or akash, the ether element. So you can think about different channels in the body that have space. You can think about the intestine or the throat, the ear canal, even our bones are porous and there is marrow that fills space in the bones but there is still a bit of a spongy quality to that marrow which has pockets of air. We often don't think of space in the body because spaces, cavities in our body are often filled with something. Food, waste products, acid, blood, but really there are a lot of examples of places in the body that are space. Even thinking about after childbirth, there is space where the placenta and baby or babies used to occupy. When I think about more of the energetic expressions of space, I think about things like expansion, more of a boundlessness or an openness, a non-resistance. If someone is really embodying space or spaciousness, those are some of the qualities that come to mind for me. Or if I myself am embodying spaciousness, I'm ab- I have an ability to be more open-minded and more receptive to people around me. I'm probably also more able to be in the present moment. I think there's a certain quality of presence that often comes with space and perhaps even something more spiritual, an ability to connect to a a greater whole, a greater consciousness, something larger than our physical bodies and our minds. When I think about air in the body, I think about things like air in the lungs, passing gas or burping because of air in the intestine. So those are some examples that come to mind for me there in the body. And then in terms of the air element, in terms of more energetically, I think about air as when we are very much in our heads, when we're very cerebral, intellectual, rational, I also think about communication. So of course, airflow is necessary for communication, how we express ourselves. I also think about movement and air being the element that contributes to menstruation, to elimination, to childbirth. And I also think about air with a sense of clarity and insight and an ability to really reflect. So for me, that's how I experience air energetically within myself and some of my associations with air. Fire in the body, I think about stomach acid, enzymes, blood, all of the different metabolites and processes that contribute to digestion. And of course, in Ayurveda, we talk so much about our digestive fire because that really is the embodiment of this kind of heat, this kind of energy that mobilizes, that contributes to things happening. So translating that into more energetics, I think about ferocity. I think about ambition. That can also be aggression. It can also be perseverance, dedication, the ability to really burn through old patterns, old ways of thinking. Also, confidence comes to mind. I often think about a fire is illuminating. It brings light, right? So for example, it might shine on the truth. It might highlight the truth. So I think about truth, illumination, and passion and sexuality, having a sexual energy, a sexual fire, 
that kind of passion to me all exemplifies a more fiery energy. Water in the body is in the membranes. So mucous membranes in the sinuses, the eyes, the digestive tract. I also think about saliva and blood and lymphatic system or even the synovial fluid around the joints. So that sense of fluidity. And when I think about that energetically, I think about fluidity as an adaptability, a flexibility that can also lead to creative flow. So for me, a creative flow state really embodies this this water element or even intuition or emotion, really connecting to our emotional intelligence, our emotional wisdom, and allowing emotion to flow. So thinking about tears and grief and sorrow as something that is very watery. I also think about courage. To me, courage is something that has emotion. It has fluidity. It has flexibility. And also it has a little bit of fire in there too. So I think none of these are necessarily one pure element. Many of them are combinations. But again, just sharing these examples with you so you can start to really try on this language or this system as a way of understanding yourself and how you experience some of these within yourself and 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 in terms of how you experience others. And I also think about water as empathy and understanding and compassion and kindness. And then finally, earth. I think about the solid solid structures of the body. So the muscles, the outer parts of the bone, the fat tissue, organs. So those, those really dense, perhaps, structures or at least solid structures. And then energetically, I think about a sense of groundedness. So I have a friend who I love dearly who, to me, just really exemplifies the earth element. She's so nourishing. So I think about sustenance as an expression of earth. She's also so grounded. The way that she carries herself, the way that she walks, the way that she listens just is so earthy and grounded and connected. I think about earth as stability, a rootedness, abundance, maybe even sensuality, your ability to really be connected with your earthly form, that primal, I think about soil as being very earthy. And even boundaries, so really being able to identify and implement boundaries as a structure, as a container to really care for yourself and as a way to express love for other people and guide them towards the ways in which you can interact in order to promote the health of your relationship. So these five elements in various combinations and their subtle energies all come together to form what are called in Ayurveda doshas. And there are three doshas, vata, pitta, and kapha. And all three of these doshas are present in everyone. They're just present in different proportions. And in Ayurveda, tridoshic theory is the theory that really discusses and describes the importance of the doshas. For me, There is a lot of, I think, pop psychology or discussion about the doshas. A lot of people who are familiar with Ayurveda first learn about Ayurveda or encounter it through the doshic system and have perhaps taken a dosha quiz online. And I really am a believer in the importance of disseminating knowledge and wisdom that can help people and make it accessible. 
And at the same time, I think sometimes these quizzes can miss the mark in terms of the intention underpinning the reason to really understand our doshic balance. So the goal isn't necessarily to categorize yourself doshically. Oh, I'm so pitta or kappa or vata or I'm a vata pitta combo. It's really about learning how to allow the wisdom of doshic balance or imbalance to signal you in a way that can guide you towards a recalibration and adjustment. So almost like if you notice that you're having a certain kind of GI distress every day, it could be constipation, it could be diarrhea, it could be acid reflux, doesn't really matter, but you notice that you're having some kind of GI distress every day, you might treat the symptom and take something for it. You might have some ginger tea, you might take some Pepto-Bismol, you might take a stool softener. But you probably wouldn't stop there. Maybe you would if you were really busy. But sometimes you might actually pause and think, okay, I'm treating these symptoms, but what are some of the potential underlying causes? Might I have some kind of food intolerance? Is there something that I'm eating in my diet? Is there something that I've changed about my sleep habits or my exercise regimen that could have been really facilitating digestion before that isn't really working anymore or that I'm not doing as much? Or is there a way in which my level of stress might be contributing. And Kate O'Donnell, who's a very experienced Ayurvedic practitioner and has written very accessible books on Ayurveda, and I really love her work and admire her a great deal, so I'll include some of her books as resources in the episode notes if you're interested. But she talks a lot about this process of self-study and understanding yourself and using doshic imbalances to signal you towards some kind of problem and ways that you can recalibrate as a mindfulness bell. So for those of you who are perhaps not familiar with the idea of a mindfulness bell and mindfulness meditation, we often talk about mindfulness bells as cues in our environment that can slow us, that can alert us to slowing down, pausing, and just really noticing what we're thinking, feeling, and experiencing in our body. So you might decide that your mindfulness bell is going to be red lights on your way to work or your mindfulness bell is going to be a literal alarm that you set on your phone or your mindfulness bell is going to be when your partner or child or loved one uses a certain word. It's some cue that you encounter with some kind of regularity in your life that cues you to slow down and pause and notice what's going on for you internally as a way to keep consistent with this practice of awareness. And so Kate uses this metaphor of mindfulness spells in Ayurveda. And I love this example because yes, technically there may be a quote unquote problem or imbalance, but it's a less pathologizing way to think about an imbalance. It's less about, oh, here's this problem pathology I need to solve. And because that can so often reinforce self-blame in a way that's unhelpful. Whereas if we think about it as a signal, an alarm bell, an alert that is inviting us, that is calling our attention toward an opportunity for recalibration, I find that just a much more helpful way of thinking about it. But again, it can be hard to really understand what some of these 
body signals, mental signals are communicating to us if we're not able to understand how these energies are expressing themselves within us, how these five elements, how these doshas are manifesting within us. And some of the quizzes that exist out there can be very helpful in some ways and helping us learn and understand that constipation could potentially be an indication, for instance, of a vata imbalance or anxiety could be potentially a manifestation of a vata imbalance, potentially, because there is more nuance there. But they can also be decontextualizing in a way that can misrepresent things or be really confusing. So maybe something is true for you some of the time, but not all of the time, so you're not sure how to answer that or represent that in a quiz. Or maybe you think you have really dry skin, but you haven't necessarily changed your hydration habits relative to changes in your exercise routine or living in a colder climate or at a higher altitude. So there really are just so many important variables to consider in terms of your lifestyle, your age, the season, the time of day, etc. that can get lost in some of these quizzes. So I think they can be a helpful tool, but I also think that this process of self-study is also really important and in yoga we refer to this as svadhyaya which literally means one's own reading and really emphasizing the importance of this self-observation so i'll talk a little bit more later about tips for svadhyaya when it comes to ayurveda but want to share a little bit more about the doshas i just wanted to give my caveats first Vata is the dosha that is comprised of air and ether and the Sanskrit meaning of vata is wind which I think is helpful because it really encapsulates the energy of movement that really represents vata. Vata is responsible for menstruation, circulation, elimination, breathing, our sense organs, also creativity. And when there is an imbalance in vata in the body, that can lead to gas and constipation. It can also lead to or be responsible for cold extremities, hands and feet, asthma, as well as anxiety and overwhelm. Pitta means bile and is comprised of the fire and water elements. And pitta has a transformative quality in the body and mind. So it's responsible for metabolism, digestion, both literal in terms of in our physical body, as well as digestion of our experiences, our processing of experiences, and the way that we might arrive at a sense of coherence in understanding our experiences and attributing meaning to them. It's also responsible for cognition as well as eyesight and its qualities are intense, hot, and sharp. So imbalances in vata could lead to acid reflux, skin conditions like acne or rosacea, red or dry eyes. It can also lead to a tendency to overwork or a predisposition to irritability or competitiveness. And when pitta is functioning well, it really helps us have a robust appetite, it regulates our hormones, it helps with our vision, our comprehension, our ambition. Kapha is the, or kappa is the dosha that is comprised of water and earth. And in Sanskrit, it means phlegm, which I also think encapsulates the cohesion and the structural element of kapha. It's cohesion, it's structure, it's also lubrication. 
Kapha is also the dosha that governs memory, immunity, and moisture. So its qualities are more slow and moist and stable. So Kapha helps us have strong tissues, lubricated joints and membranes, a hearty immune system, and has that nurturing grounding quality as well. And when Kapha is in is not well balanced, it can lead to weight gain, water retention, congestion, lethargy, as well as sadness and difficulties with motivation. So again, all doshas are present in each of us in different proportions and they govern different functions and they are qualities in the body and mind and our emotional landscapes that we can recognize. So each of us has our own unique makeup or constitution that is determined at conception primarily by genetics and it's thought that it can be changeable up until the first seven years of life and remains constant throughout life thereafter. So it's almost like your baseline constitution is pretty set and this is referred to as your prakriti. For those of you who have a background in psychology, you could think of Prakriti as similar to the concept of trait in psychology. So most people are, in terms of their Prakriti, comprised primarily of two doshas. So Vata Pitta or Pitta Kapha or something like that. It's rare but possible that someone would predominantly, in their Prakriti, be comprised of one dosha. And so just as everyone has their own unique fingerprint, each person has a particular pattern of energy, an individual combination of mental and physical and emotional characteristics that all comprise their unique constitution or fingerprint. It's also important to keep in mind that you may have a different mental prakriti relative to your physical prakriti. So say you are vata pitta in your mental fingerprint or constitution, you aren't necessarily vata pitta in your physical prakriti or constitution. Our vakruti is our current state and this can be related to balance or imbalance where you fall on that spectrum. It's a changeable state of health and so balance is also something that isn't categorical because it's relative to your unique constitution and a state of imbalance can be short or long term. So this is why in the beginning, I was emphasizing that it's not really about what food or lifestyle choice is quote good or bad. It's really about what's helpful or unhelpful in terms of bringing you closer to balance given what your baseline is. So we can become imbalanced in a number of different ways in terms of quality, quantity, or function. So for example, if we have too much kapha or too much moisture in our bodies, that might cause congestion or lethargy or sadness. We can also have a an imbalance due to quantity. So if we have too much vata in our body that might cause gas or constipation or anxiety. And we can also have imbalance in terms of function. So for example, one of the metal 
mental, excuse me, functions of pitta is drive and ambition, that fire, that sort of fire in motion, the fire and water quality. So in when that is imbalanced, that can lead to very helpful drive and persistence and perseverance. However, when there is an imbalance in the function of pitta, that can lead to repetitive or obsessive thoughts. So that drive that quality can get stuck and become quite circular and in Ayurveda we think about three primary causes of imbalance this can involve kala or the time of day and year it could so seasonally that could throw things off balance or the time of day we also refer to karma which are actions and activities of our bodies of our speech and of our mind. So for example, if we are really ruminating and getting stuck in terms of attaching to a particular self-limiting belief about our self-worth or we believe so strongly the thought that we're not good enough that we start pulling away from relationships in our lives. We stop going after our dreams and our goals and maybe even stop taking care of ourselves. That is going, those are karmic actions of, of the mind and also of our body that are going to contribute to imbalance and also how we speak not just to other people, but how we talk to ourselves, what the quality of our inner self-talk is like. And then there is also artha samyoga, which is too much or too little use of the sense organs. And so you can see how if you are overstimulated, if you are overusing your senses, that is going to throw things off balance. And similarly, on the other end of the spectrum, if you're very inactive and depriving yourself of sensory stimulation that could also throw things off balance so I think it's really helpful to understand both what can become imbalanced in terms of the quality the quantity and the function of these doshas but also the causes of imbalance because that guides us towards intervention and also understanding about again how to curate our lives so for example if we think that our imbalance is coming more from the time of day and we're noticing a pattern in terms of a pattern of our mind during a specific time of day or we're attributing the imbalance to a shift in the season. Our approach is going to be much different than if we think that imbalance is due to something we are doing or not doing with our bodies or the types of physical activities that we're engaging in or if we think it's due to getting stuck in a certain kind of mind trap or cognitive belief pattern or if we think it's due to our speech or overstimulation. So you can see how really understanding the root causes of some of these imbalances can really guide you towards the responses that are most likely to be beneficial. I think it's also helpful probably to briefly talk about the doshas that are dominant during different times of day and seasons because these this dominance of these doshas will affect everyone regardless of your 
unique constitution, regardless of your prakriti. You might be more or less affected by certain times of day or seasons based on your prakriti, but it's still important to be mindful regardless because, again, we are interconnected with the external world. The other caveat I want to briefly offer is that what I'm about to share is going to vary slightly, at least seasonally, not necessarily so much in terms of time of day, but there is some variation geographically. So the dominance of doshas that I noticed in certain months of the year when I was living in Boston, Massachusetts, in the United States, which is more north and a colder climate, was very different than what I noticed here living in North Carolina, which is more the Southeast. So again, this is why it's so important for you to engage in your own process of self-observation and self-study so that you can start to notice these shifts in your own body that shift in synchrony with the external world in whatever location you are. So in terms of time of day, Pitta is dominant from 10 to 2 a.m. and p.m. Vata is dominant from 2 to 6 a.m. and p.m. And Kapha is more dominant from 6 to 10 a.m. or p.m. You may have heard me or other people in the past say things like, eat your largest meal at lunchtime because your digestive fire is at its peak then. And one reason for that is that Pitta is dominant during this 10 to 2 period. You might have also heard the recommendation to try to get to bed before 10 p.m. And that's because the Kafic dosha is dominant from 6 to 10 p.m. And if you go past 10 p.m., you start to enter into more of a Pitta dominant period, which means your mind is going to be more active. And that's one reason why some people often experience that second wind later in the evening because that Pitta dosha, that mind activity, is more prevalent during that time. In terms of seasons again this needs to be adjusted depending on where you live but generally vata becomes more dominant in the fall in the early fall and stays dominant through midwinter and then kapha becomes more dominant in later winter and through most of the spring and then pitta becomes dominant in I would say the later part of the spring so here that is again a little bit earlier than in Massachusetts where I used to live but that may be more like again depending on the year some years the spring starts sooner and it's hotter sooner but pizza here in North Carolina is I would say more like April whereas in Boston it's more like May or even June because Boston is in more north it's tends to be much colder than here in the southeast in the United States. And then Pitta is pretty dominant from late spring to early fall. So I hope that just gives you some kind of sense of what you might notice in your own body based on what's happening in the external environment. There's so much more to be said about the doshas, tridoshic theory, ways to understand these energies, 
in your bodies and how to notice different forms of balance and imbalance and how to bring things more into balance mentally and physically. But I will wrap up this particular section of our conversation today by saying that it's important to think about these doshas as acting independently. So of course they're related and they exist within each of us. But if you think about we each if you think about each of us having a vata dial, a pitta dial, and a kapha dial, those can be turned up or down to different volumes. So it's not like if you're off balance, there's only one dosha that is off balance. And again, this is all relative to you to your unique constitution or prakriti. So you might be higher in vata, lower in pitta than your baseline, but relatively equal or similar to your baseline in terms of kapha. So sometimes we, in an attempt to really understand and grasp what's happening, we have a tendency to oversimplify. And so I would encourage you as best as you can to try to sit in the emotions of what it feels like to embrace this complexity so that you can really fully understand what is happening in your body-mind and how best to address it in a way that resonates with you and make sense for you given your unique fingerprint as well as your values and your lifestyle. So I want to come back to some tips for ways that you can practice Svatiyaha, this self-study. And one of the most important points I want to make is that this process really takes time. So I think it's not super realistic to think that in one online dosha quiz you'll be able to really get a grasp on these elements and these doshas and any balances or imbalances you notice because again this is a very complex wisdom tradition and we're only talking today about a small subset of the teachings and so really being patient with the process and giving it time. One piece that I think is really helpful is to monitor monthly or even seasonally how things shift for you in terms of your mood, in terms of your digestion, in terms of mental or physical health changes or challenges or health concerns or symptoms because the more that you monitor and really track what's happening, the more you can identify recurring patterns. And so one common example is people feeling more down or lethargic in the winter going into more of a hibernation kind of mode. Or maybe in the springtime you tend to get allergies, right? So these are things that might feel more obvious to us, but oftentimes once we start tuning in and writing down our observations or talking about them with other people, we start to really hone in on certain patterns and that can then help us understand to what we can attribute some of these patterns. Is there a trigger in the form of a specific food or a specific season? Is it a specific activity? Is it a specific relationship in our life? Are there certain anniversaries? So there can be changes throughout the year that aren't just related to the seasons, but reminders that recur on a yearly basis that can bring up grief or loss or excitement even. Sometimes even a transition of back to school can bring about certain energies or certain holidays or celebrations. So really thinking about for you, 
what happens for you? What are some of the variations? I think it can also be helpful to talk to other people to get a sense of what their experiences are so that you can have a comparison. Because sometimes we might think that we are really light sleepers or we're really anxious or we're really lethargic or not so motivated. But then when we talk to other people, we start to get a sense of what the spectrum is. So again, this is all relative, but sometimes talking to other people you trust who perhaps carry themselves in ways that you admire or live lifestyles that you might want to live. So of course it's not super helpful to talk to people who live lifestyles that you just would not want to live yourself or they structure their lives in ways that you think would stress you out or cause you great sadness but really talking to the people who really for whom with whom you have some kind of resonance and you could see yourself really aligning with how they live in the world how they carry themselves how they speak how they respond in relationships I think it can also be really helpful to pay attention specifically to seasons and how you are affected by the qualities of the season and not just temperature but also what's blooming, the shift in terms of length of day and relationship between light and dark because sometimes the more affected you are by the qualities of a particular season, the more the dosha that is dominant in that season is likely to predominate in your own body and mind. And again, because you can have a different mental constitution relative to your physical constitution, you might notice that the qualities of different seasons affect you more physically than mentally or vice versa. So I'll share an example. Let's say that you notice that you feel very affected by the transition from fall to winter. Your lips get chapped, your skin starts cracking, you notice a lot of anxiety, restlessness, agitation. You might have a lot of vata in your system because vata is dominant in that early part of winter and that transition from fall to winter. Or let's say that you find the later part of winter really difficult that you really just feel like you are dragging by the end of the winter and you are also very likely to get sad or depressed, more sluggish and lethargic in that lethargic in that later part of winter, you may be more coughing. Whereas if you are really high in pitta, the dosha of pitta, the winter season might bring you more into balance because the slower pace, the coldness can counterbalance the fast-paced, warm qualities of pitta. So in addition to observing the impact of seasons and seasonal changes on you, you can also observe the effects of food or drinks. And again, similarly, if you are high in a certain dosha, you're likely to be more affected, disturbed, distressed, thrown off by foods, spices, drinks, herbs that are also high 
in that same combination of elements. So if you notice that spicy or acidic foods really don't agree with you, you tend to get indigestion or diarrhea or abdominal discomfort, you might have a lot of pitta in your constitution. If you notice that you don't digest cold foods very well or certain kinds of beans or salads really don't agree with you and maybe even certain beverages like alcohol, coffee, black tea, fizzy drinks, then you might have a lot of vata since all of those foods and beverages tend to be high in vata. And if you notice that you feel very heavy and lethargic when you have wheat or brown rice or maybe it's difficult to digest and maybe sometimes higher fat dairy products don't agree with you, you might have some kapha in your constitution. So again, these aren't strict rules, but just some ideas to get your wheels turning about ways in which you can observe the impact of food and drink and herbs and spices in your body and mind to get a sense of what doshas might be dominant. Now again, this can be tricky because your vrakruti might be in a certain state of imbalance. And so sometimes it can be hard to understand what your baseline prakriti is when you are in a state of imbalance because that can misguide you. So sometimes it can be helpful to work with an Ayurvedic practitioner and get some input and guidance. And also it can be helpful to think back in time. So really trying to reflect on what kind of food did you tend to gravitate toward as a child? Did you have any food sensitivities? Do you remember if you preferred being more active versus sedentary? Were there certain temperamental traits that you remember in terms of anger or irritability or being very nurturing or maybe being somewhat anxious? Or are there family members, friends who knew you when you were as young as seven onward that could speak to what you were like because there could be certain ways in which reflecting on patterns over time might give you more insight into that prakriti, into that mental and physical baseline constitution without it being so affected by any current state imbalances that you might have going on. You also can take some time to observe patterns of your mind. So for example, people who have a lot of vata tend to be very resilient, great communicators, creative, able to access joy, very perceptive, emotionally sensitive. They also may be prone to anxiety, hyperactivity, difficulty focusing, dissociation. So thinking about what are your patterns of your mind when things are going pretty well in your life and what are the patterns of your mind when things are really hard? How do does your mind tend to respond in the face of adversity? And what has been true for most of your life? Again, we're trying to get a sense of what is that unique constitutional fingerprint mentally. So you could also think about your relationship to forgiveness and compassion. Does that come easily to you? That is governed by kapha. If you are someone who has a tendency to fall into greed, to really attach to possessions, to have a hard time letting go of relationships, of habits, then there may be a lot of kapha mentally. 
And pitta mentally can lead to ambition, intelligence, a lot of courage, and when imbalanced, it can lead to anger, jealousy, self-criticism, burnout. So again, thinking for yourself about what are the patterns of your mind in adversity, when things are going well, and might that give you some insight into your mental constitution. You can also think about current mental imbalances as well. So as I was mentioning earlier, worry and anxiety can be a vata imbalance but not necessarily so let's take an example of depression so on the surface you might think okay depression sadness that seems very kothic to me but as you know when you are depressed you can experience depression in a number of different ways and if we had three people in a room who all identified with the emotion of depression the specific way that they would describe that depression might be completely different. There may be some commonalities, but also some important differences. So let's just say you're going through a period of sadness that's characterized by apathy, low energy, negative thought patterns in terms of self-image, self-worth, and reduced movement. That might be more of a cophic depression. But let's say that your depression is more associated with agitation and irritability and frustration and stuckness or even rage or envy. That might be more pitta. Or if your depression is more associated with worry and restlessness and insomnia and rumination, that might be more of a vata type of depression. So again, It is important to really think about this complexly, not to overwhelm yourself, but in a way that I think is empowering, that there, again, isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to bringing us back in to balance, that there really are a multitude of opportunities and intervention points. I want to transition now into talking about some of the applications as you continue to explore what some of these elements and doshas feel like in your own body and mind. I think it can be helpful to experiment with certain lifestyle adjustments or ways that you approach certain activities to see how that affects you and what kinds of shifts it can create. And I think the conversation about depression and different ways in which we can experience depression that might be associated with certain doshas over others is a perfect segue. You might be drawn to a certain kind of practice, a way of practicing exercise or meditation or breathing, and that practice that you feel compelled towards might bring you into balance yet it also might intensify something that is already very strong within yourself and so a lot of this is a process of exploration and experimentation because of the nuance as one example if mentally and physically my constitution is very high in pitta and i feel very drawn to a heated vigorous really intense yoga class and I prefer doing this in the heat of summer, that is likely to throw me off balance because I already have so much pitta within me. That doesn't mean I can't do that practice, but it might mean that I do that practice for a shorter duration of time than I'm used to. Or maybe I do it 
in the early hours of the morning or later at night when it's cooler. Or maybe I don't engage in that practice when I'm feeling very agitated mentally or I make a point to engage in cooling practices, cooling breath practices or other lifestyle practices before or after that heated intense yoga class. Or maybe there are certain foods I try to incorporate into my diet more regularly, especially on the days where I'm exposing myself to more heat. So again, there's no right or wrong, but it is so helpful to have this awareness of what we're drawn towards and whether we're drawn to it because it's going to bring us into the balance that we're hungry for or whether it might further intensify something that is throwing us off balance. I want to spend some time talking a bit about breathwork as well as meditation. When it comes to breathwork, many of you have heard me say before that breathwork is a really powerful way of engaging your parasympathetic nervous system, the part of your nervous system that is the rest and digest, tend and befriend response. It puts the brakes on your stress response, on your sympathetic nervous system, which is intended to mobilize you to contribute to fight, flight, freeze or fawn it's the protective well they're both protective but it's the part of the stress response that really activates you and can burn you out and wear you out if it is chronic so breath work slowing down your breath rate is a great way to put the brakes on your stress response and research shows that five to six breaths per minute is about the rate of breathing that you need in order to activate the parasympathetic nervous system However, there are so many different pranayamas or breath practices that can get you there. And experimenting with different types of pranayama techniques can help you, especially as you are thinking about doshic balance and imbalance. One example of a breath practice that can balance all doshas, which therefore makes it extremely valuable, is Nadi Shodhana, or alternate nostril breathing. And this is one of the breath practices that has quite a bit of research in case that is important to you, but definitely a great one to try because it has a calming, balancing quality. It also can, if you are struggling with inertia and lethargy, it can also reduce, reduce those heavy qualities as well. For those of you who are listening who practice yoga, this is referred to as tamas. So this kind of breath practice has a really powerful impact on pacifying or reducing tamas. Practices that are really useful for vata, two examples, include deep belly breathing, really breathing into your abdomen and focusing on breathing into the belly, as well as brahmari or bee's breath. And brahmari is a slightly heating breath and so it can counterbalance the cold quality of vata and even though deep belly breathing has a mildly cooling effect it is very calming and can help with receptivity so really great for an imbalance in vata 
And both deep belly breathing or diaphragmatic breathing as well as Brahmari Pranayama, bees breath, can be practiced in a paced breathing kind of way. So as I was mentioning earlier, that five to six breaths per minute is the breath cycle pattern that typically activates the parasympathetic nervous system. So you could inhale for a count of four, exhale for a count of eight, inhale for a count of two, exhale for a count of four, whatever you can do without straining your lung capacity through these breath practices can really be powerful. I've talked about Brahmari in prior podcast episodes, but just as a reminder, this is the breath pattern where you will cover the lobes of your ears with your thumbs. You can place your fingertips on your head or at various points on the face. And you'll inhale through the nose with a closed mouth. And on the exhale, you'll make a Mm, kind of sound and covering the ears with your earlobes helps intensify the vibration internally it can be soothing to your nervous system it increases vagal tone because it activates the vagus nerve and it can also help block out some of the the stimulation that can aggravate vata so that's another reason why this is such a powerful breath practice Brahmari breath, even though it has the heating quality, can also be helpful for pitta. But some other breaths that are more cooling in quality and can really reduce pitta if it's too high and can reduce excess heat in the system include shitali, kaki, and shitkari. So for each of these three cooling pranayamas, you would inhale through the mouth and exhale through the nose without making a sound. For shitali, you breathe, inhale through a curled tongue and then exhale through the nose. With kaki, the crow beak breath, you would purse your lips and breathe through your teeth. And for shitkari, you would breathe through a smile with your tongue spread across the inside of your bottom teeth with your teeth closed. And I can include some links in the episode notes to videos of each of these if you are interested. And, but even if you practice those three breath patterns right now, just for a few seconds, you'll notice how the positioning of the tongue and the lips create a coolness to the breath that enters the body. The temperature of the air changes in the same way that inhaling through your mouth creates more warmth because the nose has membranes that warm the air. These different positionings of the, the lips and the tongue create coolness, increase coolness in the temperature of the air. And then in terms of a breath practice that can reduce kapha, ujjayi breath is a really powerful breath and it can increase your focus, it can decrease stress, and it has a heating quality. And so this is the breath where you inhale through the nose with a closed mouth and when you exhale, it's like you're fogging up a mirror. So almost like a sound, but with your mouth closed and creating that vibration at the back of your throat. So sometimes you can practice that sound first and then try to create that sound with your mouth closed. So those are some examples of some pranayamas that you can experiment with. 
When it comes to meditation, mindfulness meditation, different forms of meditation, meditation is beneficial year-round for all the doshas, yet different kinds of meditation techniques have particular qualities that can be more or less helpful for balancing particular doshas. And again, the importance is really about exploring the qualities of these practices and seeing what helps you feel more balanced. So one example of a meditation practice that can be really useful for a kaphic imbalance is a walking meditation. So again, to balance the sluggish, foggy, lethargy, lack of motivation qualities of kapha, you might want a meditation practice that has a slightly energizing, more lively quality. And so a walking meditation can be really powerful or sometimes even engaging in some kind of mindful movement before meditation can really be helpful. If you are noticing a lot of heat in the mind, the qualities of pitta that are manifesting as irritation, impatience, anger, you might want meditation practices that have more cooling or spacious qualities. For some people, meditating on the breath can be helpful because they experience the breath as a subtle anchor and a way to harness the attention on something other than some of those emotions or planning or organizing, and so it can be a way to reset the mind. However, for some people, breath as an anchor is not a way to cultivate stability. And of course, there's a difference in mindfulness meditation between experiencing emotion which isn't a bad thing, and experiencing so much emotion that you become highly dysregulated and your stress response is so active that you can't come back to a place of stability. So meditation isn't about being comfortable. It's about becoming more aware. And so experiencing emotion is part and parcel of meditation. It's part of being human. And so who, how we experience ourselves in our lives when we're not meditating is similar to what we're going to experience when we are meditating. It's going to show up there too. And so again, it's not about not feeling upset. It's more about whether or not you're getting so activated that you don't feel grounded and stable. And this can happen just because you don't like the breath. It could be if you have some kind of trauma that involved not being able to breathe or some kind of association with the breath that is negative. And so there are other options that are equally valuable. That are, there's not a hierarchy of anchors or ways to focus your attention. Again, if you are trying to balance pitta, it's not about, okay, I need to focus on the breath. It's about what is something that has a cooling, spacious quality for me. And if focusing on the breath is going to put me so on edge that I'm going to become hypervigilant and dysregulated that's not going to balance pitta another option could be focusing your attention on a sound in the environment it could be a naturally occurring sound like the hum of your refrigerator or the sound of your overhead fan or it could be something in nature outside it could also be a recording a recording of a simple drum beat or a 
piece of music that is soothing or a sound of of waves so that's one option another option is to focus on sensations in the body oftentimes focusing on a particular part of the body can be really helpful like the feet or the hands so that is an option and then sight that can also be something that can be soothing so looking at a candle flame or sand in an hourglass or a mandala or the palm of your hand and really just seeing what is something that helps you maintain a soft quality of attention so with something like a candle flame you don't want to be staring at it so intensely that it then exacerbates the intensity of pitta you want something that allows you to have a soft gentle kind of gaze yet also harness your mind to some degree to focus your mind some kind of anchor that will be supportive in that way and so sometimes when I am teaching a meditation class I'll actually experiment with these different anchors at the same time so I'll say we'll spend five minutes on this anchor five minutes on this anchor five minutes on this anchor and then the last five minutes you choose the one of those three that felt the most stable and I think sometimes people who have practiced meditation in the past have this assumption that the breath is the best. I sort of think of it as similar to when people are breast or chest feeding and they say breast or chest is best relative to bottle feeding, which of course is not true. What's best is what works for you. And so I think it's really important to let go of some of these judgments and assumptions about what is best and really hone in on what will bring you that stability and balance the pitta. And then an example of a meditation practice that could help balance vata is mantra meditation. So there is something about the rhythmic repetition of mantra that can help slow the racing mind that often is a manifestation of excess vata and it can enhance focus. For some people having mala beads or some tactile way to represent the repetitions of the mantra can also help balance the vata. So that's one example of a meditation practice or a way to approach meditation that could be really helpful. As we work towards wrapping up, I just want to take a minute to thank you again so much for joining me. And I hope that this episode was helpful in helping you arrive at a deeper understanding of what Ayurveda is. I hope it was helpful to hear about my personal experience with Ayurveda and my journey towards it. And I hope that some of the specific information about these key Ayurvedic principles and tips for self-study and examples of applications to breath work and meditation help you become more aware of your constitution mentally and physically, what you need to stay in balance in terms of your lifestyle and how you can continue this lifelong practice of self-study. So again, thank you so much for joining me and I really look forward to joining me next time. Thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave a review. And if you'd like to reach out or connect more, I would love to hear from you. So please check out my website or follow me on Instagram. 
To find me on Instagram, you can search for Dr. Foynes. That is D-R-F-O-Y-N-E-S. And to learn more about me and connect via my website, you can visit melissafoynes.com. That is M-E-L-I-S-S-A-F-O-Y-N-E-S.com. Thank you so much for carving out the time to join me this week. And I look forward to having you join the next time.